I've been looking at where we are in our journey as we have continued in this session, these sessions that are themed God in the midst of our suffering. Obviously with the aim of learning in times of suffering, how is it that we truly, as Christians, hold on to God for dear life in the worst of suffering, or even perhaps hold on to dear life right now in the midst of times where we're still suffering from things in the past, things that have happened to us. Perhaps we've never dealt with sufferings in our past to their conclusion and and so on. And that's been the whole point of this. And looking at where we are, I've got two choices to make. And I want to tell you I've not come to a conclusion on this decision yet. Um, One of the things that I'm truly praying about is when we come back after uh, Christmas and the New Year's, of either continuing in this journey, which would take us into both the Psalms and the Prophets, or to push the pause button with what we've covered all throughout Job and understanding so many of the things that we've talked about, understanding God and His redemption of our suffering, and come back later and revisit. So I'm going to be in, very, in prayer about that over the next few weeks and invite your prayers for discernment you know, on that. What I do want to do today is I am going to bring not only Job to its conclusion... But more importantly, we're going to take a look so far. What is it that we have learned about this language of lament? Of all the things we've talked about, we've gone 10 weeks now. This is the 11th. What have we learned about this language of lament? What are the ingredients to it, so to speak, that we've learned as we've watched Job? And as we've talked about, we actually talked about a few things in the Psalms. And that's what we're going to do today. So... Again, we're going to remember the framework that we have been operating in, okay? which is that I put on the board something so we could constantly physically see it on purpose. I never took it down. Because to me, it's so important and critical to understand not only our journey corporately as humankind, and I mean all of humanity, but also as individuals, our journey through this life, we pray towards salvation. Equally important is understanding the God of the journey. The God who has set us in a framework, in a journey, for the sole purpose of revealing Himself to us. And by that revelation, making us whole again. Because we weren't. Okay, And on the board, you see this. We began with the garden intimacy that man shared with God. We lost that. At the fall. And so the whole rest of mankind's journey and God's journey with mankind is restoring what was lost. Everything in his mind, everything in God's heart for all that he has knit together, all those whom he has knit together in their mother's womb is the restoration of this intimacy with him. Intimacy with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we come to know Him. And we start off knowing about Him. And that's why we see this once again. We're moving towards that Old Testament type of Torah obedience, childlike understanding of God. If I disobey, you punish. If I obey, you bless. And that's all we know about God starting off, or what we think we know. And God says, I am so much more than this. So I'm going to call you out. And I'm going to set you on a journey, and it's a journey through what? Wilderness. Wilderness. Remember the same thing. Remember this always. 
when God had Moses go to Pharaoh for the first time, he told Moses, he said, you go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, that they may come into the wilderness. And you remember what? To worship. Worship me. But always remember, no one can worship who they do not know. So quite frankly, our journey, as we grow in the knowledge of God, we're growing in worship all throughout the wilderness. Because God is in the constant of revealing himself to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. He is constantly revealing us, revealing himself to us, so we go from knowing about God to knowing him. So that we can proclaim like Job proclaimed, we've said it many times in this class, my ears had once heard of you, but now my eyes see you. I know you, okay? That's the journey that we have been on. That's the journey we are in. And it's in this wilderness, okay? So, what have we learned about Job regarding lament? I just erased a number of themes that we put on the board that I told you were in the book of Job. And I'm going to go through these very quickly. We're going to touch on them more when we truly get into the actual ingredients, so to speak, of Christian lament. Of how we fellowship with God, how we hang on to Him in the midst of our sufferings. And the first thing I had on the board, that one theme of Job is the loss of everything. In other words, great suffering. And we definitely see this with Job. Okay? We tried our best to feel it with Job, though not entirely possible. And yet we've all been there to varying degrees in our lives. But the second theme I said was very evident is this. The idea of authentic relationship and included in that faithful prayers of protest that would come from Job. Even to the point, you remember his first lament after his friends had sat with him for a week. Remember what we said? He's having very, very, my life should have never been born thoughts. And not only that, my life should have never been born, but I, this is no good. There is no good to this. It would be better off if I was what? Dead. Dead. Suicidal thoughts. <clears throat> Job had them. It would be better because then I would not be dealing with what? All of this pain. All of this incredible suffering. And he voices that. It's authentic. Job was being real before God. And we're going to address this more in just a little while. But always remember this. Why is it okay to be authentic and voice faithful prayers of protest? That is the very prayers of our pain and anguish and suffering. Because God already knows our thoughts. And because God fully intends to reveal himself to us in such a way that he changes where we're wrong in our thinking. Because part of our redemption is our, you know, our entire inner framework gets healed. And when our entire inner framework gets healed, our vision over things, our perception over our life, our perception even over the sufferings that we're going through evolves. It changes because God shares with us his mind. The third theme in Job. And this we are going to talk a little bit about right now because it's very important to see. I wanted to cover it last week. We didn't have time. You will see in the book of Job, I think you'll remember this on the board, Job will move from I to thou in his perception. Job is going to move all through his suffering. His words all have to do with who? Himself. 
my suffering. Honest voicing. I'm not knocking. You don't, you don't hear me knocking Job. He is where he is. And so every thought he has in the midst of his suffering comes down to who? I, me. Okay? In fact, let's look at some excerpts from Job's lament when he is in the I category, as I put it. Okay? Listen to Job's voice. May the day, and this comes from the first part we just talked about in in, uh, Job chapter 3. May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be in darkness. May God not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. Job 6, Job's response to Eliphaz. See if you can count and see how many times he says me. This is a fun one. I mean, it really is. I mean, I saw this point blank, and I also saw myself in my own suffering in times past when I saw this. This is in Job 6. Job is responding to his friend Eliphaz. And he says this, Mercy has rejected me, and the visitation of the Lord has disregarded me. My relatives pay no attention to me. Those who once revered me now look with disdain upon me. In his suffering... Everything caves internal. Now I'm going to tell you this. In our human mechanism, and I say this very clearly, in our human mechanism, when we suffer, there is a natural defense response that we all go through that is innately self-protective. Okay? This is not evil necessarily. You've got to hear my words on this. This is our natural response. When we get hurt, what's one of the first things we do? We grab ourselves and protect the area that's hurt. Guess what? This also happens in emotional suffering, spiritual suffering, any kind of suffering you go through. There's an auto-response, so to speak. Why? Because who in the world, and God has not created us, to desire suffering, to look for it, to chase after it. And when it happens to us, we respond, and Job's words are that. He starts going into himself. Job 16. Again, he's responding to Eliphaz a second time, his friend. The Lord deliver me into the hands of the unjust men and cast me upon the ungodly. When I was at peace, he rejected me. He took me by the hair of my head and pulled it out. He set me up as a mark. You hear it again? And Job, of course, is he right about God in this? Did God really do this to him? So he's in this wrestling. And he's expressing it honestly to God. But it's all about him. Job 18, he responds to a different friend, Bildad. I am walled in round about and cannot cross over. For he, God, has set darkness before my face. He stripped me of my glory and took the crown from my head. He has torn me apart on every side and I am gone. Every one of us in this room, if we're honest, I think so at least. When we're suffering, there's a time we kind of turn on God just a little bit. And it's not out of evil. It's out of pain. It's out of anguish. And God knows it. And so we dash against Him, don't we? And it's okay to realize that. Job is seeing himself, A, in the midst of his suffering. Job is seeing himself entirely wrong. And he's also seeing God wrong. 
And this is what happens in our greatest suffering times. Our vision gets cloudy both on ourselves and upon our God. He sees himself as less valuable. Did you hear his language? He stripped my glory from me. He sees himself less valuable. He sees himself less valid. He sees himself devalued by all of the suffering that has happened. And he is expressing it to God. But does God see Job like that? Was there ever a time that you noticed in Job that God ever looks down upon Job, devalues Job? No, in fact, in the end, we'll see in just a second, he calls him back to the way that God has created him and made him and sees him. This is all Job's response in the midst of all of this suffering. Consider your own times of suffering. Think about it. Is it not true that the bulk of our thoughts are upon who? And you're not saying that because I'm leading you in that direction. You all have sat with me and talked. And when we talk, we both know it. And you're never knocked for it. We have to be guided through it. We have to be brought to our God and God come to meet with us to change our focus, to redeem our suffering. To heal that which is broken or else we would stay in the blessed self. And this is the very thing that God became incarnate to free us from. To give us freedom from self-focus. And self-focus comes from many, many things. It doesn't just come from our chosen sin. It certainly can. But it also comes from the sufferings that we go through in this life not dealt with. And God has come to bring us out Of that self-focus to God-focus. And that's what it means. That's what it truly means that Job moved from I to thou. I to thou. So let's look at, again, remember God showing up. And then I want you to hear how Job has totally changed his language toward God. Now we remember that when God shows up in Job at the end of Job... We remember it says that God speaks to Job out of the what? Remember that? Yeah, the clouds. Whirlwind, tempest, glory of God, you name it, that's what the word means. God shows up and comes out and speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. And that image, remember, is the same image of the glory cloud of God that rested on Mount Sinai when he called Moses to go up in fellowship with him. And if you remember what St. John Chrysostom said, he said these beautiful words about this. He said, God set, it's as if God set heaven itself right over his suffering child, Job. And St. John Chrysostom said, it's as if he pulled up his throne right next to his beloved Job to make himself that present with him. These are the words of St. John Chrysostom over how God comes, how completely God comes to be with His faithful servant, Job. And then what does He say to Job? Gird yourself up. Gird your waist up like a man. And we remember what that meant. It meant, Job... You see yourself so undignified. You see yourself so devalued in the midst of your suffering. And you've lost sight of me. Come back to who you really are. Because you are no different. Your suffering has not changed your validity. 
Your suffering has not changed your value to me. So brace yourself up like the man I've created you to be. And in that condition, understand your value. And in that condition, you stand before me and I will question you. And as he begins to question him for four chapters, it's really, as we talked about last week, the great revelation that God gives to Job. Now, after that revelation... Job has heard God. He has experienced God in reality. And he's being brought back to his true self. You ready to hear his language? Remember what it was before? Me, I. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked... Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and speak with me. You said, I will question you. You shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Where is this focus now? What has God done? He's freed Job. By the way, he has not restored Job yet. Don't forget this. He has not restored Job yet. He's in the process. What he's done is he's taken the eyes of Job, the countenance of Job, and he's taken it off of the way that he sees himself so wrongly because of all that's happened to him. And he takes that gaze and he points it like like taking the chin, like a father taking a child's chin, and he puts his gaze right back on him. And now, what is he saying? I see you. And so what does Job speak about? He's no longer speaking about me. He said, I'm speaking about you. You have just revealed yourself to me. I know you now. My mind is not on me, it's on you. What's Job just been freed of? Not only he will be released and the the suffering will be redeemed. He's been freed from his blessed self. Do you get that? Job has been released. Released from the bondage of self, where all of our thoughts keep coming back to us in times of suffering and brokenness, in our broken condition. That's the true Christian freedom. Christianity takes us, even when we're joined to the body of Christ, we start off as an individual, but through baptism, are we baptized into a vacuum? No. We're freed from the individual. We're joined to Christ in His entire body in heaven and upon earth. Paul says it this way, out of many pieces you have now been made one loaf. That's the healing of the Christian. Because there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing but bondage when we exist as an individual or when our mind is so totally on ourselves. And like I said before, our mind being totally on ourselves, always remember this. It's not always out of evil that we do this. It's not always out of pride or arrogance that we do this. It's out of pain sometimes that we do this. It's out of suffering that we do this. And yet either way is bondage to the human soul. And so God shows up to Job and he reveals himself and he turns his gaze upon him. And not only that, he shows him himself. 
And now it's thou. In fact, the last thing he says is, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Remember what we talked about last week, if you weren't here, it's very important we understand, I abhor myself is not I shame myself. I abhor myself in Hebrew means I decrease in my own thoughts and in my own eyes. I increase in much better things. It's the John the Baptist statement. He must what? Increase. And I must what? Decrease. That's the the idea in I abhor myself. I see God. What is self? What is self? I see everything I was ever created to be in Him because I was made in His image. And although all of this suffering and all of this broken intimacy and everything that we encounter in this world that we call the wilderness that breaks us apart, throws us inward, and damages us, He comes and He reveals Himself so they set our gaze on Him and we see all that really matters in our lives. And we're free. That's where God is taking us. None of us are there. We're all on this journey. And every time God reveals Himself, we're moving dot by dot to that intimacy. Losing ourselves in that and gaining everything because of who He is. And that is what it means that Job moved from I to thou. And I want to make a huge note here because this has everything to do with God's purpose wilderness. I did not say in that that God causes and inflicts pain. It's just there because of this, the fall. And yet in this wilderness, it is the place where God is absolutely and always engaging us in that revelation, bringing us to Himself, restoring the intimacy that we might what? In the wilderness. Worship Him. We can't worship Him when our eyes are here. Our gaze gets off of this. We become free. And not only are we worshiping Him for who He is, we're worshiping Him for the freedom that He granted. I'm no longer thinking about myself. Every time I do something, something coming back to myself. My thoughts on me. I become free. It's a lifelong, eternal journey. It's not all in one biteful. It's little, little chomps on it. Okay? Now... Having said that, let's take a look at some of the things that I think will be good to take away for us. As far as what we see in Job's, what did Job do in hanging on to God for dear life? Or as Michael Card says in, in his book, staying on the dance floor with God until the music stops. Right? What are the things that Job did? that we ought to recognize in our own life? But even further, if you remember what I ended with last week. One of the things that I said very clearly was, we have something Job didn't have. Union with God. Right, Holy Spirit. Union with God. Job did not have that. But some things are truths that even get amplified for our benefit in knowing how to lament, which means knowing how to experience and worship God in times of suffering so that we grow in intimacy and union and we are freed from ourselves. So I want to mention a few things. The first one is this. Our lament, just like Job's, is a, when we're in suffering, it is a constant wrestling Godward. It is a constant wrestling toward God. 
just like Job did. I'm going to give you an example from the Psalms because they very succinctly in two different chapters, Psalm 42 and 43, David really shows us this wrestling. Okay? Psalm 42 and 43 were uh, written at times where David was in great anxiousness and suffering. <coughs> Let me give you just a few snippets, and I want you to listen for both the lament that David cries out over his suffering, but also his fighting to stay with God. Okay? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I'm going to stop right there. What is he longing for? Presence. He's longing for God to pull up his throne. You see? He goes on. My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, where is your God? Now listen. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you so disquieted within me? Put your hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. Okay, wonderful. We see a turning. We see a wrestling. But in the same chapter, as with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? I take great comfort in David. Because when I'm wrestling in my suffering, I'm just like him. I fight to turn my face toward God, and that works for a little while, but then what happens? My mind goes back inward, and I wrestle with myself again. And he does, and he says that. But then he turns back in verse 11, again with the same statement. Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you so disquieted within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. This is lament. This is the ebbing and flowing. We see this in Job, who wrestled with his friends, then turned and wrestled back to God, then explained himself to God, then blamed God for some things. All of these things are going on in the very real suffering of the human person. So what is an ingredient? There's no way around it. This is our will trying to join itself to God. And it is a fight. And it will always be a fight. Secondly, our lament must be authentic with those faithful prayers of protest. God knows us. We are told and we believe that God is fully acquainted with our suffering. Therefore, there is no thought that He's blind to. Ever. So why pretend? We are welcome to bring every bit of our humanity to His divinity. Why? Because He brought all of His divinity to our humanity. I want you to think about that. We can come before Him with authenticity and no pretense and no pretend, bringing our humanity to His divinity, because our whole salvation is wrought in the incarnation where He brought His divinity and joined it to our humanity. We can come before Him as we are. I mean, good gracious, if Job could speak words cursing the day of his birth, lamenting that he was ever born, and saying it's better that I'm not even alive, I'd be much happier then. We can come before God in that way. In fact, Job 10.1, listen to what he says. And there's truth in this. He says, since I am weary and groaning in my soul, I will let loose my words to him. 
Because I am distressed, I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. What is Job purposing? He's purposing to be authentic. He's purposing to wrestle with God. And to wrestle toward God. I will speak in my bitterness. This is who I am. I will speak to Him in my pain. I will speak even if I'm wrong, I will speak. And we have the blessed invitation to do the same. Again, why? Because this is a God, when He opens our eyes to His presence with us and we see Him, every bit of our false or wrong complaining is undone anyway. And now we have the greatest language and vision we've ever seen, you see. So we can come to Him honestly. I'm going to get back to that in a minute because in Christianity... God gives us blessed banks for the river of our lament to run through so that we don't go into such error so many times. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. All right, the third thing that we can take away from lament, we actually talked about it before we even got into Job, and it was based on Psalms. Our lament is to be seasoned with and surrounded with the very praise of God. Why? Is there any time you can think of that you have suffered that God is not worthy? Not only that, it's because of what happens when we praise God. What He pours out upon us to aid us in times of affliction. Listen to what the psalmist said. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will He be, favor- will he be favorable no more? Has His mercy ceased forever? And I said, this is my anguish. Here's the turning. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of all your deeds. What's he doing? He understands his suffering. You heard it in the first four verses of that. This man is suffering. But David, the man after God's own heart, is turning himself and saying, I will remember. How important is remembrance in the Christian life? Even so much more than for David. And why? Because we have been joined to divinity. Because we have been joined to the body of Christ. What is Eucharist? It's what? Remembrance. The word means thanksgiving. But Jesus said, do this in what? Remember. And remember what that word remembrance means. It's the opposite of amnesia. Amnesia means we forget and lose forever in our minds. Anamnesis is the word remembrance in the Greek. And that not only means we remember something that happened 2,000 years ago, but somehow by the grace of God, every time we come to that blessed altar and receive bread and wine that has been made the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, He brings us absolutely to table with His disciples. He takes what happened 2,000 years ago and makes it fully present. He takes the crucifixion. He takes the blood shed. He takes His body broken. 
and he makes it absolutely experiential in the now. It becomes real for our lives. That's remembrance. Dwell in me. Yeah, dwell in me. And so when we worship, when we praise God in the midst of our suffering, when we remember the works of the Lord, always remember this. Scriptures say that God inhabits the praise of His people. What does that mean? God makes His dwelling place. That's literally. He makes His dwelling place in the praise of His people. Now, having thought about this, here in the Christian life is something we need to look at. This is something, not only the Holy Spirit, which we talked about, being joined to God, we've been given that Job didn't have. But there's something else that we've been given as Christians. We have been given a rule and rhythm to our lives. On an annual basis, yearly, we have the Christian rhythm of the church that follows the incarnation from the conception of even the Blessed Virgin Mary all the way to the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then living as Christians. It's the yearly feasts and celebrations. But what else do we have? Within that yearly rhythm of the Christian life, we have a daily rhythm. We have a daily rhythm. What's the daily rhythm? The hours of prayer. And the hours of prayer are morning, noon, and night. Or evening prayer. That's right. That's exactly right. And compline. And compline, absolutely, at the very, very last of the day. Have you ever thought about, have you ever really looked at the structure of the hours of prayer? They are structured in the same way as the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus asked his disciples how, I mean, excuse me, when his disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? He gave them the Lord's Prayer. I want us to take a look at that real quick. Because if we see the pattern of the Lord's Prayer and understand what God is doing by grace when we fellowship with Him in the midst of that prayer, we will understand the hours of prayer and why it is we do it a certain way. Okay, So let's, let's take a look at the Lord's Prayer real quick. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you hear anything about you in that? No. There's nothing praying for me, about me. Where, where is our focus going when we utter those words? God. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. It's all praise to God. It's all taking our focus and putting it. Doesn't matter what's going on in our life. Doesn't matter where we're, if we're in the pinnacle of blessing or the pit of, of the all the suffering and, and the despair that we could be in. We are we start prayer, our Father. The first third of the prayer is Godward completely. And then we continue. Our first intercession. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For And stop there. How are we going to end? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
you need to understand that all of the hours of prayer are modeled in that same fashion. What did you hear? All right, well, let's see. Yeah, I can do it up here. The first part is praise. The middle part is intercession. You look at the prayers of the hours of prayer. They start with praise. That's it. That includes vespers. That also includes matins. But even the hours of prayer start with praise. Intercession comes later, but it's important. It's in there. And so we intercede. Now, what happens in our times of suffering during intercession? We say the prayers that we were given, but you do know that there are parts in every prayer book that say you can offer up your own intercessions at this point. And that is the point where you can feel free to wrestle with God. Express your pain, your anguish, your suffering. Talk to Him with authentic, faithful prayers of protest if you need to by that point. You see that? But one of the things that I've found as I've begun to engage, as I began to engage the liturgical prayers of the church, I don't, it doesn't matter what's happening in my life, I may come to prayer feeling awful. I may come to prayer in great suffering, wrestling with something within myself or on behalf of another. It doesn't matter how I come to prayer. You know what starts happening? As soon as we start praying together, as soon as we start praising together, Where's my focus being shifted to? Off of this and onto Him. By the time I get to intercession, guess what's happened a lot of times? Even my own thinking and perspective on my suffering has changed. Why? Because as I see Him in the praise and I testify to who He is, He is changing my vision. He's changing my perspective on all of the suffering that I'm dealing with. Now, yeah, but I'm also going to tell you something else. In the greatest times of suffering, I still am struggling, even after praising God. This is not magic. We are real. God is real. And we're bringing ourselves authentically to Him. And He's coming to us. So there are times I still dash against Him. But then what do we conclude with? Praise. In our hours of prayer, and vespers and matins. We are concluding with praise, again, shifting our hearts. This is only possible, I will tell you, because every one of you living stones has been filled with the entirety of the Holy Trinity. And that is the only way that in the fellowship with God that we call prayer, and in this structure... <coughs> That he is constantly ready to pull himself up next to us. And that doesn't mean that there's going to be time, there's not going to be times, and I want you to hear this. That does not mean that there are not going to be times, because there will be many, that when you're praying or when you're here worshiping in the liturgy, in the divine liturgy, doesn't mean you're going to feel something all the time. I want you to wipe that out of your minds. That when I come to do this, there's either something wrong with me or wrong with God. If I'm in the midst of my suffering or I'm going through a prayer service or the hours of prayer or the worship of God and I just don't feel anything. My friends, our feelings are the devil's playground. 
There is always intense deception in the feelings and the emotions of mankind. And it can go two ways. He can deceive us in the midst of our sufferings away from God. Or there can even be deceptions based on emotions that we're experiencing God, but maybe we're not. Maybe we're projecting our neediness upon God. I think think we can all identify that at times, where we think we've experienced God, but really it was just a projection. Something we felt we need, and so we have that and we move on. But the problem is, you can see it. We haven't moved in this direction at those times. Our feelings are not what's important. Our will is what's important. Now let me quickly follow that up with this. When we will towards God, I'm not saying that the great experience and emotions and feelings do not happen. They did for Job. They do for anyone that God comes and sits with and reveals himself to. I'm saying we don't let our emotions guide our reality. The only thing that should guide our reality is the reality of God. We check our emotions constantly. Our emotions are broken. He's healing them, but they're broken. So this is the great gift that we've been given. All of these prayers, all of these prayer times are all for fellowship with God in the midst of our worst suffering, in the midst of our greatest blessing. And what we see in Job is this. Job willed relentlessly toward God. He willed to hang on to Him. In suffering, we will never fully understand. God also willed toward Job. And when the two wills meet, God not only reveals Himself, But this is how God redeems the suffering of mankind. And in part, I'm sorry, excuse me, redeems the suffering of mankind, but also redeems his faithful that remain in him. Job's getting to intimacy and union with God. It was possible because of the sufferings that this Satan and this world presented. And we will all walk through it prayerfully, willfully hanging on to God. And that's my prayer for all of us. We wrestle, we're authentic, and let it be seasoned with praise. There's so many times, I I, I can't even count, or I don't even have time to tell you about it, but there's so many times in what I consider, looking back at my life, some of my greatest stages of depression, when the grace of God in the midst of praise, my praising Him, whether I felt like it or not, saved my life and kept me going. I hope this has helped. I hope this has helped and given us some things to think about in times of suffering because there's the last thing I'm going to mention we're going to close is this. There's one other thing that we've been given that we need very desperately in times of suffering, means by which God reveals Himself to us, and that is His Holy Church. Not only just one another, but God gives us priests, and He gives priests priests and bishops and metropolitans. We never suffer alone. And we have everything to keep our minds and hearts right, directed to hang on to God during the suffering because of the great gift of the church that God has given us.
Let's stand.